Be seated. Once again, it is great to see you out on this Father's Day Sunday, and we have been in a series on Heroes of Faith here in the month of June, and it has been wonderful to hear passionate teaching and preaching um, from so many of our men here at Centennial. This morning, uh, this may depress you right away, there's only one speaker, okay? So you're stuck with me, but we're still going to talk about three heroes of the faith on this Father's Day morning. So we're keeping up kind of that same pattern. And uh, the, the people we're talking about today, they're all in the same family, which is unique in Scripture, that faith would continue to be passed down from generation to generation to generation. That's God's plan, and yet it rarely happens in real life, and it rarely happened even in Scripture. So our text is going to be in Hebrews 11, if you will head that direction to Hebrews chapter 11. And my family and I were at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas uh, last Sunday, and we had a great time there, but we obviously missed you guys, and we're glad to be back. And it seems so cool outside, high 90s, but it was 117 the other day uh, where we were. So uh, it seems like it's almost winter here. But yeah, I heard it's going to be 108 next Sunday, so we must have brought it back with us. Uh, don't forget to mention in the announcements, next Sunday evening is our Next Step classes. And uh, if you've taken 101 but never 201, or taken 101 and 201 but not yet 301, or if you still need to take 101, make sure you sign up at the kiosk and get your name in, and we'll let you know when these classes are available We're hoping we have enough people to do 201 and 301 uh, next Sunday night, but please make sure you let us know. And and also, uh, don't forget I Love America Sunday and the church picnic coming up two weeks from today. I'll be back in the gymnasium area and looking forward to a great time together. The church is going to provide all the meat and buns and condiments and all that stuff. If you're able to bring a side and a dessert, that would be fantastic. Okay, hopefully you've made it to Hebrews chapter 11, and now we'll read there just three verses for our text this morning, starting in verse number 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. How many of that sentence describes you? You've gone out before, but you have no idea where you're going, right? Uh, By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. What a beautiful passage this is. And sometimes in Scripture, Uh, you'll see two successive generations that follow God by faith. Rarely 
you will see three in a row. Uh, Hebrews 11, 8 through 22, reminds us that during the days of the patriarchs, four generations in a row followed God by faith. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. Now, today we want to look at the father of Isaac, which was Abraham, and the father of Jacob, which was Isaac, and the father of Joseph, which was Jacob. So if I just confused you, we're going to talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? So the patriarchs demonstrated faith in God by trusting his word absolutely in spite of the circumstances. And we're going to do this in a little bit of a unique way this morning. We're actually going to see five practical things in the history of each of these patriarchs in our Father's Day message. And I'm sure you're aware that the patriarchs weren't perfect, okay? They had flaws. They made poor choices. You know, we have some good dads here in this room today. I I know many of them, if not most of them personally, and we have a lot of good dads in here today, but we have no perfect dads. Hey, not one. None of us are perfect. We all mess it up. We all yell at our kids when we shouldn't. We all say the wrong thing. Yeah, we all do the wrong thing from time to time. But here's what I want you to understand about these patriarchs. They were flawed men, but they trusted God's promises. There are no unflawed men, okay? There are no unflawed women either, by the way, ladies. Just get that off the table right away. Uh, but, you know, they trusted God's promises. Uh, this is the wrong time to amen, man. Come on now. <clears throat> We got to time that right, okay? Uh, some you get us all in trouble. I mean, it's Father's Day, uh, so so even I think think about these patriarchs, right? You know how much scripture these guys had to follow? None. They had no written scripture. They had no indwelling Holy Spirit, and that's why they take up such a large portion of this list here in Hebrews 11, because. Instead of questioning God's word, they trusted God's word, right? Now, that's a huge thing because we live in a generation today that questions God's word. They question authority. They question morality. They question everything that people didn't used to have any questions about. They just said, that's what God said. Let's do it. And these guys, instead of questioning, they trusted Uh, We live today uh, in a culture that has more access to Scripture than there has ever been. The Bible has now been translated into many hundreds of languages. We have study guides and study Bibles and study groups, and yet we live in a Christianity where God seems to be questioned more than he is trusted where people talk about God, but they don't know God, where people like the benefits of having a God, but they don't want to bear any responsibility as his followers, where people use excerpts from the Bible to justify their personal approach to life instead of using the whole counsel of God as a lamp to their feet and a light to their path. And if we have ever needed a trust and obey faith, folks, It's now. We need the simplicity of a trust and obey faith like never before. 
And with these three men, we're going to see what a trust and obey faith looks like. Right? God said it. They did it. And it's that simple. Now, we're going to start with Abraham. And I want you to go down uh, to verses 17, 18, and 19 of the same chapter here in Hebrews 11. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that an Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. So let's talk about Abraham accounting that God was able. That's the first part of your notes today, if you're following along with us. There's notes in your bulletin or on the version app. Accounting that God was able. And this is really, this is the basic definition of faith. When you count on the fact that God is able to do what he's promised, that's the start of everything. We're going to do a quick walk back through Abraham's life to see five highlights of his practical faith. By the way, if your faith is not a practical faith, it's a worthless faith, right? Faith in name only, it doesn't mean anything, right? Have you ever met somebody who makes promises and is really on the ball? They're usually called politicians, and they tell you all this stuff, and then they don't ever follow through, and they get called something in name only, like a dino or a rhino or whatever it is. Uh, they get called that in name only. Well, there's a whole bunch of kinos, Christians in name only, right? They, they have all this talk faith, but they don't have any of the walk faith. And Abraham, uh, his walk talked and his talk talked, but his walk talked louder than his talk talked. I haven't done that one for a while. I remember that one. You guys remember that one? That was from back in the 80s. Can you dig? Yeah. That's back from the 70s. All right? It's groovy. That's from the 60s. Okay, so uh, this, this practical faith. Let's talk first. He displayed his faith through obedience. He displayed his faith through obedience. Did you catch what it said in verse 8? It said, by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out to a place which he should have to receive for an inheritance, obeyed. Right? It doesn't say anything else. It just says he obeyed. Now, how do you display your faith? Is it a certain jacket you wear or a skirt or a ring or a tie or a set of shoes? No, when Abraham was called to go, he obeyed. He didn't consider the conditions or the implications or the options, he just went. And he went toward a place where he had never been because he had faith in the God who gave the instructions. And obedience is still the true test of faith. Now, once again, way too many Christians these days have conditional obedience Okay, that's obedience that only reaches the level of convenience or the level of logic or the level of circumstance. And Abraham, he threw out the conditions and the convenience and the logic. He packed up his household 
and he went. He obeyed. He did what God told him to do. Here's the thing I find about convenient Christianity. The act of convenient Christianity is passed down more aggressively than all the words a parent ever utters about God. Right? Convenient Christianity means that God is a priority when I feel like he should be. Church is a priority when I feel like it should be. But if sports is going that day, then we'll do that instead. Or if a hobby is going that day, we'll do that instead. Or if there's something we want to go to, a festival, or whatever, we do that instead. Can I tell you this? Convenient Christianity is passed down more aggressively than all the words you can ever tell your kids because they're watching you. And they know what's really important in your life. And Abraham, he just obeyed. Now let's see the second thing about him. He refused to settle for anything less than God's promise. This is huge. He refused to settle for anything less than God's promise. When Abraham got to Canaan in Genesis chapter 12, he could have settled for a nice area to homestead and and he could have built a cabin for his clan and lived out the rest of his years. Instead, you know what Abraham did? He wandered around and lived in a tent. Now, why did he do that? Well, it tells us in Hebrews 11, he looked for God's promises to be fulfilled. In fact, go back to verse number 9 in Hebrews 11. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles, that's tents, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. <clears throat> we were standing the other day and took the kids on Monday to the Grand Canyon. And we got hoodwinked because we didn't know that the west entrance is not a national park. It's not the official part of the Grand Canyon. Uh, it's owned by the uh, Huachapi Indian Reservation. And so instead of paying the fee per car like you do in the north or the south, you end up paying per person more than you would per car at the other places. And so we ended up shelling out quite a bit for those kids to go over and go like that. Uh, but it was still fun, and, and we took them out, and so... Uh, we're by the edge, and, and I got, you know, I, the edge is about right there. I got about right here, and I'm like, you know, taking pictures, and this big old Huachapi guy was working down here, and he said, sir, you need to step back, and, uh, except his voice was a little deeper than mine, and sir, you need to step back. He weighed like 400 pounds. He was huge, <clears throat> and so anyway, Sophie wanted to come down and look, so I brought her down. I held her. And Dad, I can't see over the edge, and I really wanted to see the river. And so I went to my buddy who told me to step out and said, hey, is there anywhere she can stand where she can actually see, like, down in the canyon? And he said, little girl, come with me. And he starts walking toward this edge. Like, he puts her up on a rock that's, like, on the edge of the Grand Canyon, holds her arms, and lets her look. Yeah. That, that was some faith right there. But, uh, but then he said, you want to look? <laughs> um, okay. So she stepped back, and we got her all situated. I went over, 
and he's holding my arm, and I said, can I take a picture? Because you could see the whole thing, and the river's down there. <clears throat> and we didn't know that an hour later, we'd be able to go to another place and see it even better, you know, standing up on this thing. But uh, so he's holding my arm, and uh, we had a short little conversation there. Uh, and it was interesting, uh, kind of the faith aspect uh, of that, as somebody's holding you while you look at it. And, and so we got back over. And anyway, Sophie asked me, uh, Dad, who found the Grand Canyon? I thought, I don't know. I'm trying to be Wikipedia here, you know, on the spot. I said, I think probably, I'm sure it was Native Americans that found it originally. And then there was a guy named Cortez who was looking for a river of gold. And I gave her some spiel that probably wasn't even right. Uh, she's in here, so now she knows that. But, um, <clears throat> but anyway... Can you imagine this guy, Cortez, as he's coming up and they're looking for this river of gold? They never found the river of gold. There's all these people. Uh, the guy down in the discovered Florida, he's looking for this water of life, you know, this spring that keeps you young for the remainder of your, your life. And people are looking for all this stuff. You know what Abraham's looking for? He's looking for a city. He's looking for a city. What kind of city? A city whose builder and maker is God. And by the way, he found it. Uh, but it wasn't during his lifetime. And it could be that you have settled for less than God's promises in your life. And you've got caught up in the rat race, all about me, all about here, all about now mentality living under this artificial urgency that requires so much time and commitment, but ends up with little or no value. And uh, he was looking for something. He didn't settle for anything less than what God told him. Now look at verse number 11. Through faith also, Sarah herself re received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age. Yeah, she was 90. That's way past age, because she judged him faithful and promised. Therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. So here's the next thing about Abraham. When hope seemed irresponsible, he still trusted in God. Let's see more about this over in Romans chapter 4. And, and if you have your Bibles, turn back to Romans chapter 4. It had been 25 years since God had promised Abraham a son, right? So think about yourself, right? You're 25 years old. God promises you a son. Now you're 50, and you still haven't received the promised son. How many of you are getting just a hair antsy now? You're like, goodness gracious, God, what's going on here? That's a long time to wait. Look at Romans 4.18. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God at being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. You know, I love that phrase, who against hope 
believed in hope. When hope seemed irresponsible and ridiculous, Abraham trusted in God. You know what will influence the people around you more than anything else? When you live your faith in difficult times, right? Because they'll think, hey, if I was in his shoes, I'd give up. If I were in her shoes, I'd walk away from God. But they just trusted God when it was illogical, when it was irresponsible, when it made no sense. Have you given up on that big prayer? Have you stopped asking God for anything larger than, you know, God bless the missionaries and God bless my friend and God help Aunt Betsy to get over her gout and, you know, whatever. Abraham was still believing in huge things because he trusted in an infinite God. What if, what if we asked big? What if we live like the God of the universe actually lives in us? What if we ask God for something that was so out of the ordinary, so irrational, that it blows our mind to even think about it. You know, he's the kind of God that works in the impossible. He's the kind of God who works in the extraordinary. Abraham, let's talk about this next one. When tried, he valued the gift or the giver above the gift. When tried, he valued the giver above the gift. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. That was in our text. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. It had to have been the most difficult walk he ever made. Right? He's walking up Mount Moriah with the promised son Isaac, who has finally arrived. And Isaac says, hey, Dad, we got the fire and we got the wood, but where's the lamb? Answer that one, Dad. Abraham, trusting in the giver, says to him, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. And Abraham and Isaac walked to the place together, and Abraham built an altar and laid the wood on it. And then he laid the precious gift of his own son on the altar. And I don't know how many of us would have had the faith of Abraham. I mean, we won't even offer God the priorities in our home. Right? We, we won't even make the effort of teaching our own children about God, much less actually placing our children on the altar. And God calls to him from heaven and says, Abraham, here am I, he says. Lay not thine hand upon the lad. And they found a ram in the thicket. Another thing about Abraham, he trusted that the judge of the earth would do right. He trusted that the judge of the earth would do right. You say, how could Abraham put his son on that altar? Right? How could he do it? Well, there's only one answer that makes sense. Abraham trusted in God's goodness and righteousness. He trusted that God would do the right thing for his life and for his faith and for his son. And that led him to obey. Do you know what every act of disobedience toward God is? It's a lack of trust in God's goodness. It's what it is. That's why Adam and Eve sinned. They 
didn't really trust that God had their best interests in mind. And that's what happens every time we disobey God. And here's Abraham, and he trusts that God would do the right thing. You know, Abraham had been in a negotiation with God before. And if you ever read this, it's in Genesis 18. Uh, God let Abraham know he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their grievous sin against him. And Abraham says to God, God, if there are 50 righteous in the city, would you hold off? God, you wouldn't destroy the righteous with the wicked. That's not like you. And then he asked this question. It's so profound. He said this, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Right? Abraham says this to God. God, you're God. You're going to do the right thing, right? And God said, if I find 50 righteous people, I'll spare the whole city. Abraham says, well, what about 45? How about 40? God, what about 30? What about 20? What about 10? God says, I will not destroy it for 10's sake. Abraham trusted that the judge of the earth would do right. That's why he was willing to obey God's instruction when they made no sense at all. Now, let's talk about Isaac, and I want you to go back to Hebrews 11, and we're going to look at just one verse there about Isaac. And we spent most of our time today on Abraham just because Scripture spends so much time on him. But I want to note these things about Isaac and Jacob as well. Look at Hebrews 11, verse number 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Okay, so from Isaac, we see concerning things to come. And now I want to take a quick walk through the practical faith of Isaac. And to do this, we need to go back to Genesis chapter 26. Okay, Isaac, by this time, has already been married, and he's beginning to live uh, his adult life <clears throat> on his own. And at the beginning of the chapter, uh, God confirms with Isaac the covenant that he had made with his father Abraham. Much like his father, Isaac believed God. But also much like his father, Isaac told a foreign leader that his wife was his sister because he was afraid of being killed. Right? So you can read that on your own. He goes into this countryside and he says, yeah, I'm here with my sister. And then the king looks out from his tent and sees them out there. He says, that's not his sister. And he understands that they're, they're husband and wife. And so Isaac had flaws in his faith, just like Abraham did, just like we do. Look though at verse number 12. Then Isaac sowed in that land and received in the same year an hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. Now I want you to see something that's very important about Isaac. He was a sinner, but he was also a sower. <clears throat> he was a sinner, but he was also a sower. When Isaac fell down, he got back up and started working. And this is a quality trait in any person, because the fact is, we all fall down from time to time. We do. And sin is present in all of us. But the presence of sin doesn't mean that sin has to reign over us. It doesn't mean that sin has to hold us captive. It doesn't mean that we have to give up and just live sinful lifestyles. 
When you fall down, get back up and start sowing your faith. Look again at the end of this verse. The Lord blessed him. He received a hundredfold. This is so powerful, this, this principle in this chapter. Now, see the next thing about Isaac. God blessed him in spite of himself. Right? By the way, if God has ever blessed you, he has blessed you in spite of yourself. Right? Guess how many of us deserve God's blessings? That would be zero, right? None. Zip, zero, nada. God blesses us in spite of our weaknesses and failures. God blessed Abraham and Isaac in spite of their weaknesses and failures. And when God blessed Isaac, here's the thing, the Philistines didn't like it. They envied him, it says. So they became spiteful. And you know what they did? They're so mad that his crops were doing good that they went out at night and put dirt in all of his wells. Some good neighbors, huh? Right? They went and filled his wells with dirt. Talk about envy. Talk about spite. That's a rotten thing to do. But look at verse number 18. I love this. And Isaac digged again the wells of water, which they had digged in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham. He called their names after the names by which his father had called them. Here's another thing about Isaac. He labored to redig the wells of his father. At some point, Isaac realized the value of what Abraham had done of what Abraham had taught him, of what Abraham had instilled in him. And he went out to redig the wells. But notice something else. He called them by the names that his father had called them. See, Isaac revived the wells and the ways of his father. You know, that might not be a bad thing for a lot of people to do. Lots of people spend decades of their lives running from the ways of their fathers only to figure out that maybe, just maybe, those tried and true ways are a lot more solid than what culture is selling. Now, you're going to notice in Isaac's life that once he started redigging wells, he came upon the importance of water. And we find him digging wells all over the place, if you read this chapter. Here's the point I want to make. It's the next point about him. He realized that water is more valuable than land. You realize that water is more valuable than land. If you don't dig a well, it doesn't matter how much you land, how much land you have, right? If you want to know how valuable land is compared to water, do this. Drive from Las Vegas, Nevada to Caldwell, Idaho, okay? You know what you're going to see? A whole, whole bunch of land, that it doesn't have any water. Why, water is more valuable than land. And in this chapter, the living water of Beersheba represents revival in Isaac's life. God appears to him again, and he builds an altar there, and he digs another well. And you can have everything this world has to offer, but if you don't have the water of life, Jesus said you'll gain the world and lose your soul. Water is more valuable than land. 
Jesus is more valuable than everything in the world put together. But a lot of people don't understand the faith of their fathers until after it's way too late to do anything about it. And the faith of your father, even if he's flawed, if he had the faith in Jesus Christ and God that Abraham, Isaac have, it's something to emulate, it's something to follow. Then we see in chapter 27 of Genesis, Isaac is old. His eyes are, are dim, and he calls his sons in to bless them with the covenant that God had made with him and his father Abraham. Now, Hebrews 11:20, 20, we, we read it. It said, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. And if you read in uh, Genesis 27, you could read the blessing that he gave by faith to his sons. He believed that God's intention was to bless his children. Now, do you know what that does? It protects you against micromanaging the lives of your kids, right? He believed that God's intentions and God's way was the best thing possible for his kids. Now, you may say you believe that, but you know what really has to happen before you believe that? You got to come to a point where God's the only thing your kid has. You got to hand your kid over to God because you trust God and his intentions for your child. So many parents, oh, I got to get my kid in this. I got my kid in that. If my kid doesn't make it on this, we're going to. And you fill in the blank of what it is, right? It could be, uh, you know, it could be the tic tac toe tournament. I don't know what it is, right? It could be the chess club. I, it could be anything. If my kid doesn't make it in this, he's going to be doomed. If he, he doesn't get in the equestrian club, we're out. You know, maybe go back to distrust in the fact that God made your kid and he knows your kid's life and purpose better than you do. And just train him in the way he should go. He trusted in the certainty of God's plans for his children. That's the last one. He trusted in the certainty of God's plans for his children. Isaac lived almost 4,000 years ago. But dads today have a lot in common with Isaac. We can know for certain that God's plans for our children are good, that they're better than the plans we can envision, and we can trust our children to God. Isaac couldn't control outcomes for his kids, but he knew the God who could. Now, in these last few minutes, I want to talk about Isaac's son, Jacob, who was a flawed character, just like his dad and his grandpa before him, just like me, just like you. Hebrews 11.21 says this, By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. Now, anytime you run across someone who is still authentically worshiping God at the time of death, you're observing faith. You're observing faith. But let's start with an earlier time in Jacob's life in Genesis chapter 28. So I kept you in Genesis, and uh, Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel. Take a wife from the fence. And, and God Almighty blessed thee and make thee fruitful. And he gave him a blessing. Isaac sent him away. 
Now, let's talk about this first part of Jacob's life. He followed the charge of his father regarding a wife. He followed the charge of his father regarding a wife. Now, Jacob, if you know much about him, he was a trickster in his youth, okay? He stole his mother's birthright for a bowl of chili. He was a trickster, but he was willing to listen to his parents about major life decisions. And that's an important faith trait. God gives us the wisdom of those who have experienced more life than we have for a very good reason. We need it. Did you know that in many places on the globe today, parents still arrange who their children will marry? I know it's hard to believe. I'm not advocating for that. I was pretty excited to choose from myself, actually. Uh, but that wisdom, that approval can be a blessing for both children and parents. And I've seen so many times when that wisdom was discarded, a tragedy quickly followed. And God places us within a home structure to help guide us and protect us. Now, not every home has that safety and that structure. But if our parents are following God, God wants us to align ourselves with what they're telling us. And Jacob traveled toward the land of his fathers to find a wife. As he traveled, God renewed the covenant of, of Abraham and Isaac with him in a dream. This is down in verse number 15. So in the dream, God says, Behold, I'm with thee. I will keep thee in all places where thou goest, will bring thee again to this land, for I will not leave thee until I've done that which I've spoken to thee of. And Jacob awakened out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I knew it not. Let's see this. He recognized the presence of God and made a vow. He made a vow. You can see that in verses 20 to 22. He made a vow. He recognized the presence of God. Now let's fast forward about 20 years. Jacob has married, which is a whole different story. He now has many children. He's traveling back home. And he hears that his brother Esau with whom he has had a hostile relationship for many years, is coming to meet him with 400 men. Okay? Now, if you have had a long-going fight with your brother, and he's coming to meet you with 400 men, what is your first thought? <laughs> We're in a big pile of trouble. So Jacob immediately sends up a prayer. And it's in Genesis 32. And I want you to see it real quick. Genesis 32, verse number 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which said, Return to thy country, thy kindred, I will deal well with thee. I'm not worthy of the least of all thy mercies, and of all the truth which thou hast shown unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan. Now I'm become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. Later that night, a very strange thing happens. A man comes to wrestle with Jacob. Now, some people think it was an angel. Others think it was God in human form. Jacob, though, was a pretty good wrestler. And apparently, because the angel had to use special powers to beat him, uh, Jacob was able to really wrestle very well. Look at verse 26. 
The angel said, let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. Here's what we see about Jacob. He passionately desired the blessings of God on his life. Let me ask you this. Do you want the blessings of God on your life? And everybody, yeah, cursory, yes, I do. Let me ask this. Do you really want the blessings of God on your life? Because if you want the blessings of God on your life, then you have to fully commit your life to the God of blessings. Remember, Abraham valued the giver above the gift. And the gifts of God don't have the same value without a relationship with the giver himself. Jacob said, I'm not letting you go till you bless me. Now let's move ahead to Genesis 35. Jacob's come full circle. He's back to Bethel, the place where he made his vow to God. And in Genesis 35, verse number 7, I want you to notice that Jacob builds an altar. And look what he calls the place. He calls the place El Bethel. Before, it had been named Bethel, house of God. And now he names it after the God of the place, the God of the house of God. That's who he was trusting in. And so we see this. He trusted in the God who finishes his plan. Dressed in the God who finishes his plan. Jacob's faith was in the person of God, not the place of God. Not the things God had to offer. Don't put your faith in a church. Put your faith in the God of all churches. See, God is the one who makes covenants. And it was there that God reconfirmed his covenant with Jacob. Modern Christianity has opened the door for us to have a relationship with the place of God instead of the God of the place. And there are so many, uh, so many so-called believers who go to church for social affirmation, uh, to check the box on their duty for the week, but they rarely, if ever, enter into the presence of Jesus. And if you go four minutes over in the service, they start looking at their watches. I say that because it's 1204. Church... You know, church won't do you any good without Jesus. There's no church on earth that'll give you eternal life. There's no church on earth that'll finish God's plan in you. Only Jesus does that. And as we finish our look at Jacob's life, we're going to fast forward again about 40 years this time. Jacob and his family now live in Egypt because of the great famine that had taken place. They're no longer in the promised land. And yet on his deathbed, as he blesses his descendants, Jacob assured the generations to come that the children of Israel had been promised the land where Abraham and Isaac had once sojourned in tents. And he raised his hands and blessed them. Here's the last thing about him. He worshiped God in spite of the circumstances. He worshiped God in spite of the circumstances. This is ultimate faith. When the situation's bad, God's good. When the circumstance doesn't make any sense, God's good. When people fail you, God never will. When your plans have the bottom drop out, trust in God's good plans for you. Our faith challenge today is back in Hebrews 11. And I want you to see it for yourself because there's a powerful truth given to us in Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse number 13. 
This is such a powerful passage, and you should become very familiar with it. Verse number 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. God is not ashamed to be called their God. When you're a part of the family of God, God loves you as his child. He's preparing a place for you. And no, you might not receive the end of everything you believe in here on this earth. But faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. And there's a better country coming. No more tears, no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sin, no more tragedy, no more perversion. The patriarchs were persuaded that God would come through on his word. Job said, for I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. Paul said, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he will keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I'm persuaded that God is going to do what he says he will do. And if you're persuaded, living in obedience to God's word will be a natural byproduct of your faith. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were persuaded, and their faith bore the fruit of obedience. These are such important lessons for our lives. When I was a kid, I don't even remember which team did it, but there was a team in the NFL that every time they got in the huddle, the big old lineman, 320-pound lineman in the huddle, would all lock arms. And I thought, you know, it'd be really neat if we had some men of God who are dads who would lock arms and say, we're going to live for God together. Because, yeah, dads, we need God, but we also need each other. Sometimes we need accountability. Sometimes we need a pat on the back. Sometimes we need somebody to text. Sometimes we need somebody to pray with. Sometimes we need advice. We need each other. And so I'm going to ask all the dads who'd like to be a part of our commitment prayer this morning to come right up to the front and the altar here and to lock arms. Let's do it right now. We're going to have a commitment prayer for dads, okay? All the dads who'd like to be a part of the commitment prayer, get on up here. And let's lock some arms. <clears throat> Grandpas, you can come too. Your dads <clears throat> will allow it. All right. All of you up here, help this guy. He's only got uh, one arm because he's carrying a baby. <clears throat> you guys can help him figure it out. And it's a beautiful sight. That's wonderful. It's wonderful. We need some dads and grandpas and great-grandpas who want to live for God. And let's pray for God's power in their lives. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful Father's Day service and the faith lessons that we can learn from flawed men. All of us as men, we stumble and we fail and we make mistakes and we have regrets but help us to get back up, up every time and head in the direction of faith. Help us to stay on the faith journey 
And God, if we get off track, if we hit the guardrail, if we go over the sign, help us to get back on the path. And I pray that you would help us as men to support each other in this father faith walk. That we'd be here for each other. There are men up here who have wisdom that they can impart to the generations that follow them. There are young men who have zeal, but they don't quite have all the knowledge yet. Help us to support each other through Jesus Christ and to do what you've called us to do as fathers. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, everybody. Love you. Have a wonderful Sunday.